us, we've uh, spent the last four weeks, we've started the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Manifesto is what we're titling this message. If you haven't been with us and want to uh, play catch up, just go online, all of the messages are online. Last week we looked at and we talked about um, the blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And we talked in that, that Jesus here in this passage of scripture and really throughout the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety Christ is going to use paradoxes throughout the, the, this sermon. He's going to, what a paradox is, is simply taking something and flipping it upside down on its head. So that's what a paradox is. So as, um, here's some, just some illustrations we looked at the first weeks. But Christ, throughout his teachings, throughout the gospel, he talks in parables, but most of those parables are paradoxes. If you know about Christ, Christ said that, the last shall be first. That doesn't make sense. He's saying there that he's going to take the first and make it the last. In our logical brains, that does not make sense. And he talks about when we become givers, true givers, we're really becoming true receivers. Though we give things away, we really will receive things back. He talks about the living will become, uh, the dying will become living. Well, that doesn't make sense. But Jesus is taking that teaching that when we die to self, we will really live for God and with God forever. He talks about losing. Losing is really finding. If we lose our life, if we give ourselves our lives away, if we lose our lives, we will really find our lives. He talks about the greatest, the least shall be the greatest. He says that the last shall be first, that the weak shall become strong. Last week we talked about that those who mourn will be comforted. And this week he's going to take another truth that to us doesn't seem right, and flip it on its head. You know, we live in a world that the world tells us uh, more, faster, get to the top, achieve, 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 achieve. Do whatever we can to get to the highest rung possible in success and step over people as you do that. And Jesus is saying here in this passage, that's not how it's supposed to be at all. You know, we live in a world that talks about these three things, that we must become justified. This is the world talking, not Christ talking, that the world says, we must, be, we must justify ourselves. We must justify our, our actions. We must defend ourselves. When we begin to justify, we'll be defending ourselves, and we must serve ourselves. You know, we live in a world that's survival of the fittest. If you look at all the people that are in, uh, not all but most, of the people that are in high-ranking jobs, they've stepped over people uh, to get to them. They've slandered people. And so that's the world we live in. We live in this world that talks about uh, me, 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 me. It's about me. That's what the world tells us. And that's what was happening in this day. That's what was happening even uh, 2,000 years ago where Jesus is addressing this crowd on this mountain. He's saying to them, you've heard it said this way, that it's all about you and that you must achieve things and get to the highest place fo possible as fast as possible. Uh, don't take your time doing it. And Jesus says here in this passage, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, and what he's saying to us in the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, it's not about us. You see, for us to be kingdom citizens, to live in Christ's kingdom, we must live a different way. And so for us this morning, what we're going to look at is this idea that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 5, he says this, But blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth. Blessed is the meek. And I think that word meek has gotten a bad rap uh, in our society. I think the meek, uh, we think of certain people or certain kinds of people. 
And so this morning what I want to do is I want to deconstruct the myth of what meekness is and then give us some biblical examples of what meekness is to look like and then how we are to come out of that. How do we become meek? Because this is not, uh, we'll look at this in this passage, this is not a suggestion from God through Christ Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount. God is not saying through Jesus this morning, hey, it's a good idea that you become meek. This is a command from God that you need to be, you ought to be meek. And if we're not meek this morning, what we'll finish off with is we need to look at our salvation. Only the meek are saved. And so for us this morning, as we journey through this word meekness, uh, we'll look at what it isn't, we'll look at what it is, and then we'll look at what is so important about it for us, and then we'll look at the blessing that comes out of being meek. There is a blessing that comes from that. So uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer We get started. God, I'm so grateful to you and all that you're doing here. I'm so grateful even this morning for the worship through John and through Jared. God, I, I do pray that we would hold you close, and I pray that we would believe that all things are possible through you. Through your death and your life and your resurrection, Jesus, we have hope. I pray for that hope that would be so true for us this morning. Continue to lead us as we look at this sermon, your sermon, the greatest sermon that was ever preached on this planet. A sermon how you have called your people, believers, Christians, to live out practically our daily lives in communion with you, with ourselves, and with other people. And so this morning, as we look at this word, meekness, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what Christ is saying to us here in this sermon, blessed are the meek. And so what is meekness? Uh, but what is it not? What isn't meekness? That's where we need to begin. Meekness, I think we think, when we think of, at least when I think of meekness, the idea is someone that's a coward or cowardice. They stand back. Uh, they don't uh, insert themselves or assert themselves into things. Uh, we, some people would say they're spineless people. They just kind of wander to and fro and kind of just kind of go with the crowd. A meek person goes with the crowd. Uh, something else that uh, meekness, most people uh, associate meekness with being timid or being afraid. A meek person is not afraid. Uh, another thing that uh, a meek person would be said in our world is they're indecisive. You know, they can't say anything or do anything. Um, they're always people pleasers. That's another thing uh, people would associate with being meek, that meek people are just uh, people pleasers. They're wishy-washy or they lack confidence. You know, there's the technical term for what the world says is meekness, the psychological term would, would be codependency. That we're so, the meek person, so codependent on the feelings of someone else that they don't want to hurt anyone else's feelings so that they're meek, so they don't assert themselves into the person's lives. But that's not what meekness is at all. I think if we think that is what meekness is, that we as believers ought to be meek people, meek, meek people in this world that will never assert ourselves into the world. I think the world is right when they look at us as meek people, but it's be become their definition and not God's definition of meekness. You see, we're in the place we are because we have been cowardice. We have not asserted ourselves as believers into the world that God has placed around us. We can see that just on the news, all over the news. There have been what the world would say is the Christian has become meek. I'm so grateful that Christ himself was not a, 
uh, a meek person in the sense of the world. I'm glad that he held true to what meekness really is. And so what is meekness? If this is what it isn't, that we're not cowardice, spineless, wishy-washy people, what, what is it? I think we can swing the pendulum the other way, too, and become too uh, crass and too uh, bold and not bold in a healthy way. That we'll assert ourselves into everything and we'll become very destructive people. And we've seen the church head that way as well, which isn't healthy. And so there is a middle ground, and I believe it's the true definition of what meekness really is. You see, I'm glad that God, through Christ Jesus, didn't start with this world word meekness in the first Beatitudes. Remember, these Beatitudes build off of each other. And so this is an outcome of the first two. We will only live as true meek people when we, what, when we see ourselves as poor in spirit, that we don't have it all together, and then that we mourn over our sin. You see, when we have those two coupled together, then we become meek people. Because here's what the true definition is, was what the Greek definition of the word meek means. It means it's the idea of taming an animal or soothing or there's a medicine, an ointment or a gentle breeze. You see, the true definition of meekness is strength under control. You, you know I've said this from this pulpit before. Uh, I'm deathly afraid of horses. I, 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 the other day, I got enough courage. Uh, Mr. Larry was riding his horse. That's brave enough in itself. I'm not doing that one. I was, he was riding his horse around town and came in to the church parking lot. I happened to be on the front porch and thought, well, I'm going to give this a try. I'm going to go pet the thing. <laughs> and so I walked over and talked to Mr. Larry and pet the horse a little bit, and then it uh, blew snot all over my hand. I thought, well, there's another reason I don't really like horses. Uh, sweet animal. Sweet, sweet animal. But when I think of meekness, I think of horses. Now, here's the deal with a horse. It's getting hot in here. I'm going to have to take this off. I don't know if it's, uh, I got a lot of feelings about horses already. And maybe it's a, a, a response to talking about horses and getting a little sweat on the armpits. I got to stay away from horses. You see, in, as a counselor, we often tend to send people out to uh, what we would call equine therapy or horse therapy. The beauty about equine therapy or horse therapy is the horse knows exactly what the person in the center of the ring is feeling. And they'll have all kinds of responses. I did equine therapy before, and needless to say, mine was a little bit aloof and a little bit lazy and just kind of wandered around the the thing and I was like man that says a lot about myself my buddy that was in the the ring with me he went in there I've never seen it happen the, the therapist said she'd never seen it happen it literally fell over and went to sleep on him <laughs> and I was like man I, I mean it literally fell over all fours laid over and just started breathing heavily and snoring I was like man that is amazing but when I think about meekness I do think about horses and this is what is so true about horses Horses are one of the most powerful animals in the world. The things a horse can do, the things a horse can pull, is amazing to me, without even breaking a sweat. But you see, if you take that horse, and you've seen it, there has to be this breaking period in the horse for the horse to be any good. If not, you get on a wild horse, and the thing is going to do whatever it wants to do, however it wants to do it. That's how people get so hurt with horses. Maybe that's, I, I got on an unbroken horse, and they just put a saddle on there and was hoping for the best. That happened to me when I was in elementary school, and I've been deathly afraid ever since. 
But when you look at a horse, we can draw so many parallels for us. Because a horse really is a, if they're broken, and I don't mean broken like old and crippled, I mean broken like as in the, the rider, the owner has broken the horse from its wildness, and it puts all that energy and all that passion and all that that horse has into control, it can do some amazing things. But you see, that's so true for us as believers. You see, we are just like horses. If we have an untamed spirit, we can do a lot of harm to people really fast. And we can do things that are very destructive. But it all comes back to this one word, will we be meek? Will we be a meek people? Will we be a meek church? Will we be a church? Will we be a person that's under God's control? You see, we must come to those first two two places of the Beatitudes. That is our stepping stone because we will only be meek if we really do see our desperate need for a holy God. You you see, the same way that a, a true horse with a true rider, the horse really does trust the rider. You know, maybe this wouldn't be true for Mr. Larry's horse, but I'm sure if I got on that horse, it's going to pick up on some things that I don't trust the horse, and it's going to do some things that it wouldn't be doing with Mr. Larry on the back of the horse, because why? The horse trusts Larry a little bit more than it trusts me. And so for us, when we come to this idea of meekness, do we really trust God our Father? Because we are powerful, powerful people. Oh, you can just look through history and see the power of people. And I, I, this is a terrible example, but he was one of the most powerful people to ever live, Adolf Hitler. That man had more power than most people ever have. But look what he did with it. Very destructive. Because he did not submit himself to a God bigger than he was. You see, a, an unmeek person believes they are God. And therefore, they have no need to surrender to anything but themselves. You see that destruction. We can go through Stalin. We can go through all the, the, the evilness in the world. They had great power, but not them submit themselves to anything. You look at our country and our forefathers, they were some powerful people. But our forefathers were meek people, but yet they were powerful people because they placed themselves under authority. We're here today because of meek people. They had great power, but yet they surrendered themselves and they trust in a God way bigger than themselves. And so for us this morning, is that true for us? Are we known as a meek people? Let's look at the Bible for some examples of what uh, meekness looks like in the Bible. If we want to look at what does meekness look like, here's what it looks like. You see, meekness is this. This is a definition we'll play off of. Meekness is not weakness, but weakness uses its power for a purpose. Meekness does not use power for its own defense or selfish purposes. Meekness is powerful, completely surrendered to God's will. That's what meekness is. Are we surrendered to God's will? There's many, many examples throughout the Bible, but we'll look at four. The fourth the most important. The first one is Abraham. Abraham was a meek, meek man. 
You see, Abraham was Abram, and then God chose Abraham to become the father of many nations, the father of all the nations. And yet there's this moment in time where Abraham is walking with his nephew Lot, and at that moment, God had said, everything is yours, Abraham. All that you can see is yours. And then him and Lot had this conversation, and in the conversation, it's in Genesis uh, Abraham could have chosen the best of the best of the best of the, of the land. And what did he do? He referred it to Lot and said, Lot, you choose. You see, that's meekness. He didn't use his power and his control to gain anything for himself. You see, Abraham had the right to have the best of the best. But he deferred it over to Lot and said, Lot, you choose what's best. Because at the end of the day, Abraham knew that he wasn't in control, but God was in control. And he would be blessed regardless of whether he was going to bless himself or not. The next example is a powerful example. It's in the very end of Genesis, if you know the story of Joseph. Joseph um, was his father's favorite, and his brothers hated him for that. And, and his story kind of plays out to the very end with that. And so jo Joseph was with his brothers, and his brothers decided they were coming to as Joseph was coming to him to get a report from the brothers, they threw him into a well, and then they sold him into slavery. And then you see just this, this life of slavery for Joseph until every along the way it said that God blessed him, and God blessed him, and then God blessed him. And then they're in this famine. And his brothers are starving, and yet here Joseph is in the palace getting all that he has and gaining everything. And then his brothers humbly come to him begging for food to stay alive. You see, in that moment, Joseph could have got all the revenge he wanted. You see, in that moment, Joseph could have paid it for what was paid to him, to his brothers. You see, he could have put his brothers in a worse position than he lived in. But if you'll flip over to Genesis chapter 45, this is a short account of the story. So here's the story. Joseph uh, sees his brother. He gives him some things, and we, we see Joseph's brothers come back to him, and then it says this, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Make everyone go out from here. So no one stayed with him. And when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed. They were afraid in his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. Meekness. And they came near to him, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now do not be disappointed. Uh, Disgrace or, or angry with yourselves because of you sold me here. For why? God sent me before you to preserve your life. For the famine has been in this land these two years, and there are five more coming. And God sent me before you to preserve you, a remnant on earth, to keep you alive, to keep you as survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then he says this at the very end. Joseph reunites with his brothers. He calls his father and his other brother to come, and 
they come, and at the very end of uh, Genesis chapter 50, it says this, verse 19 and 20. They're all together in Joseph, in the palace. You know, Joseph is the second in command over all of Egypt at this time. He's gone from slave, from the least to the best. Remember, God, that's what God does. He makes the last first and the least the greatest. And they said to Joseph, the brothers, in verse 17, they say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and your sins because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God, your father. And Joseph wept again when they spoke to him. Verse 19. But Joseph said to him, Do not be afraid, for I am in a place. For am I in a place of God? Am I God is basically saying, No. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I'll provide you with your and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to him. You see, that's being meek. Joseph was a meek man. Joseph did not take revenge, yet Joseph had all the power in the known world at that time. And yet because Joseph had surrendered to God, Joseph saw the bigger story. In his meekness, he gave it over to his brothers. Another example is this. Let's flip over to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 24. In 1 Samuel, what's happened is, uh, at the beginning, the, the Israelites wanted a king, and so they chose a king, King Saul. King Saul kind of rose up from the ranks and became powerful and then uh, he disobeyed God, he sinned against God by taking the Ark of the Covenant before uh, the Philistines into battle that was a no-no in God's economy God told him not to do that and he knew if he did that the presence of God would be with him and they'd win and that did happen but he still disobeyed God and so here they are uh, in this moment uh, God takes his hand, his blessing off of Saul and says to Samuel, Samuel the prophet, hey Samuel, I want you to go and I want you to find David and I want you to anoint him as the next king. And that happened in chapter 16. And so all of a sudden now, David becomes uh, the giant killer, slays Goliath. The fame of David begins to arise and Saul begins to catch wind of that. And Saul knows that he will no longer be king. God told him that and his sons would no longer be king, but David would be the king. And so here, here's this moment in time that Saul is chasing after David. And David has his men with him and they go and hide in this cave. And here's in chapter 24, we see what happens in chapter 24. Uh, Saul needs to use the restroom literally and it said so Saul went to the back of the cave to use the restroom and there David and all of his men are hiding out in the cave. And the, the men of David are saying to David, now's your chance. If you kill him, you'll become king. Take over, take over, take over. Assert yourself, David. Don't be weak here, David. Take things into your own hand, David. And David, in that moment, says, I'll do that. So David sneaks up to Saul, and you know the story. David cuts the, the, the hem off of uh, Saul's dress. That's what they wore back then. I don't know why, but he cuts the hem of it off. 
And Saul leaves the cave, and then David comes out holding him up and says, Look, Saul, look what I've done. And in that moment, meekness hit David. This is what it says in chapter 24. Verse 4, 5, and 6. Saul had went in to relieve himself. This is verse 3. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here's the day which the Lord said to you. Behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as you have seen good to you. Then David arose stealthily and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing he as the Lord's anointed. And then David says in verse 8, he says this, And afterward David also arose and went out, out of the cave and called to Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul called, looked behind him, David bowed his face, meekness to the earth. And paid homage. Verse 10. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against you, my Lord, for he is your anointed. You see, in meekness, David understood that he was not in control. You see, everyone around him said, hey, step over people, kill Saul. Today's your day. And in meekness, David said, oh, that is not it at all. That is not how it's supposed to be. I think the finest example that we can find throughout Scripture is found throughout the Gospels. Jesus himself. You see, Jesus himself, it tells us in Philippians, and it tells us all over that Jesus was in heaven, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He had everything at his disposal, and yet in, in his meekness, he humbled himself because he was under God's control himself God the Father and he obeyed God and said okay God you have a plan to redeem your people and so he humbled himself into God's hand and God sent him here to redeem his people and we'll see time and time and time again through his life how meek he was all the way to the very end he comes before Pontius Pilate a man who wasn't meek but yet we see the weakness in Pontius Pilate because he would not stand up for what even he believed to be true. And in that moment, Pontius Pilate comes before Jesus and says to Jesus, Are you the king of kings? And Jesus says, I am. And Pontius Pilate turns him over to the, to the Romans. The Romans begin to beat him senselessly to the place that Isaiah chapter 53 says, We would not even recognize Jesus for who he was. That's how bad he got beat. And yet it says this, He opened his mouth not once. You see, Jesus at any moment could have stopped what was happening to him. But he saw the bigger plan. And in his meekness, he surrendered to God's control and not his own control. Even before that, even in the garden, he was saying to God in the garden, I don't want to do this, but yet I'll be meek. I will surrender to your control. And so for us, what does meekness look like in our lives? We could go through, just go through when you have a chance, Hebrews chapter 11. All those men and women in that chapter are meek people. I just picked four today. Is our life 
marked with meekness? Would people see us as men and women that are under control and controlled by something way bigger than ourselves that we have really surrendered our lives to something beyond ourselves? Or would people look at the church, would people look at my life and say, no, Todd's in control. Todd's out for his good and not the good of other people. You see, what happens is the blessing that comes out of this is in the last half of the verse. You see, when we become meek, the blessing happens. You remember that word blessing from the first week means we are approved by God. It's, got a, it's God's approval on us as believers. And the, uh, the approval is this, the reward of being meek is this, that we'll inherit the earth. What does that mean? You see, the word inheritance simply means this, that something that is going to be given to us that is allotted to us, and what's that? It's the the earth itself. You see what Christ is saying there in chapter 5, verse 5, is that in your obedience through becoming meek, you will see everything will be restored the way it was supposed to be in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You see, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it was Adam and Eve as meek people that were in control of the whole world. You see, in chapter 1 and 2 in Genesis, God said, I give you dominion or I give you rule over all of the earth it's all yours you see that will happen again we see throughout the new testament that we will get to sit with god on god's throne and we will get to judge the world for how it is but that word doesn't just mean something that is going to happen that word means something that is happening now when we become meek people we'll inherit the world because we'll begin to see the world for what the world really is, and we won't want the world, and yet because we don't want it, then we inherit it. You know, it's so easy to, when I surrender to something, I gain so much more in my surrender. Because in my surrender, I don't have to be in control. If I'm not in control, then it doesn't matter the outcome. You see, when I'm trying to inherit the world on my own, I care about the outcome. And I'll make people objects, and I'll make people things rather than people being people. And so for me, when we become meek, and we as a church become meek, we live open-handedly before God, and it's up to God. And then we get to see the blessings that come out of that, and we just get to sit back and watch. And so when we become meek, we inherit so much more. In closing, I want to look at three things. What is the need for meekness? What do we need meekness for? How come this is such a big deal in God's economy to be meek? I believe the first one is this. It's for our salvation. You see, we must be meek to be saved. Because a meek person says, I am not in control. You see, a meek person is one that will see God for who he really is, and that's what will bring our surrender to him and it's only through our surrender that we obtain salvation we cannot obtain salvation on our own it must be given to us and we must receive it and so for us the only way we'll receive it is to say to ourselves i am not in control when someone is in control the second one is this it's a command from god you can read through psalms you can read in the new testament god commands his people to be meek he says this in uh, Galatians, he, he says that the fruit of the Spirit, there's meekness or gentleness. 
a command. Those, those things, the fruit of the Spirit, are not suggestions that we become. They're commands that we become. Love, joy, peace, patience. You know the fruit of the Spirit. Those are commands given to us by God. And the last one, I believe that meekness. And it's really the whole uh, Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. It's our greatest witnessing tool. We cannot be great witnesses for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will not be great evangelists without meekness. Because it's in my meekness that I'll see the world for what it really is. And so for us this morning, as we close this passage to us this morning, is your life marked with meekness? Is that a characteristic of your life? For me, studying this the last few weeks, been very convicting for me. Because though I confess to be a follower of Christ and meekness is not in me, I've got a problem. And I've got to search and ask God to search with me to expose the things in my heart that would keep me from being meek, a man that's under God's sovereign control. What is it in me that would want to keep the reins of my life and not hand them over to God? You see, I'll never be meek holding one hand on the steering wheel. A meek person is in total surrender and steps out of the way and says, God, you take the reins. You see, I'm not the rider. I'm just the horse. You're not the rider. You're just the horse. Will we allow God? God says it this way. Let's turn in closing to this let's turn to Matthew chapter 11 my hope for you is that this passage the way it did for me jumped out on the page I've heard this passage I've taught this passage a, a thousand times maybe we've talked about it last week we'll talk about it again this week is Jesus saying to his people, come to me all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Maybe one of the reasons this morning you are not resting in the Lord is because you are still in control. See, to be in control is tiring. Now it says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle or I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, the word picture there is so true, you've heard it. You know, what they would do back in the day is they would take an oxen, a young oxen that was more powerful, uh, more vibrant, more health, more wealth uh, than the older oxen. And they would yoke the older oxen to the younger oxen. And the, the, the younger one would do all the work, but yet the older oxen would do all the steering. And the older oxen broke the young oxen so that they as a team would do more work together. You see, if you just yoke uh, a young ox to a plow without an old ox, you're, you're not going to have straight lines. You may not have lines at all. You see, for us, that's true. Will I yoke myself to the Lord this morning? 
Well, I let him be in total control of my life. The same way that day when Larry came in this parking lot riding on that horse, he pulled it to the right and went to the right. He pulled it to the left and went to the left. That horse was under total submission to Larry. And because of that submission to Larry, Larry got to where he wanted to go because of the horse. And God's word says to us, God can use any means he wants to. But yet God's means to reaching the world is us, his people, but we must be yoked to him to reach the world around us. And that will only come through being a meek people. That we will let go and let God be in total control. You see, if there was any part of that horse that day that wanted to be, be in control, Larry would have been in big trouble. You see, there is a time that it says to us in the New Testament, there is a time that God lets go of the reins when we want to do our own thing. He says, Peter says, or Paul says, okay, God says, let them go and be in their sin. God will steer us to a point that he will say, okay, go do what you want to do. I pray that would not ever be true for us. That we would continue to submit our lives to a God much bigger than us. We are not God, he is. Are we surrendered to him today? Is our lives marked with meekness? Let us pray. God, I pray that we would never lose this example this morning. That God, we are a horse and you are the rider. God, I pray that we would Surrender to you. God, that your word would be the thing that we surrender to, that your, your word would be the reins on our life. God, allow us as a church to be marked with meekness to be known as a meek church, God. That through our humility, through our surrender, through our meekness, God, we will see a lost world come to know you. Every day, Lord, allow us to see that we're poor in spirit. Continue to break our hearts that we become those who mourn after our sins. And every day, God, I pray that we'd wake up with a sense of humility that we are not God and you are. And we'd hand over the reins and say, just for today, God. Take my life just for today. It's in your hands. Use me. Do with me as you'd please. And in God, all that, your word is so clear that you would get all the honor and all the glory in our lives. Lead this church, God, as we submit ourselves to you. God, I pray if there's anyone in here this morning that has not surrendered their life and their control and their power over today, that God, through your Holy Spirit, even now would press upon their hearts that you, through your Spirit, would bring conviction, God. And they would surrender their will and their life over to your care this morning. That you would become the Lord and Savior of their life. Pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. If you do not know the Lord this morning, you 
and to surrender to him. I'll be up front. If you came with someone, just ask them. They can bring you up front. Let us be marked as a church that's full of meekness.